it's kind of a tradition. Whenever I get up here, there's a microphone issue. I'm starting to think that might be a user error. Um, hey, uh, once again, my name is Derek. I am a campus minister at RUF, UC Irvine, and uh, it's great to be back. It's great to be home to see so many familiar faces. Uh, we've missed you, and also to see so many new faces. Uh, just, I, I keep hearing wonderful things about what's happening at Grace as a church, and that just warms my heart because this is a this is a beautiful place. Uh, spiritually and, and in every single way. And so uh, if you're somebody I don't know, I'm glad you're here too. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here uh, preaching out of God's word. And that's what we're going to get to in a minute. But just to set the stage, uh, I think you all, Marshall, Marshall told me, I think you all have been working through a sermon series on the Ten Commandments, talking about living by grace. And, and that's great because the, the basic structure just to get into it, the basic structure of the book of Exodus, right? So the Ten Commandments come in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus has 40 chapters. But for the first 20 chapters of the book of Exodus, there's not really much talk about what commands God is giving the people of God because for the first 20 chapters, God is busy saving the people of God by grace before they've done anything right. God comes in and he rescues and he gives them a gift that they do not deserve. And then when he gives them his laws, he gives them his commandments, the commandments are there in order to lead people into the rhythms of grace. How to live as if God has saved you, right? This fits really well because what I've been doing with my students at UC Irvine for the last few weeks is going through the Ten Commandments. But we've been framing it a little bit differently. We've been talking about the, the, the liberation of the law. So, so the first 20 chapters of, of the book of Exodus are a story about how God saves a people out of slavery and sets them free, and how it points forward to the way that Jesus saves a people out of slavery to sin and guilt and death and shame and sets them free, and how the law, the law is there in order to help you stay free. It is, it is a liberating law that gives you the outlines of what a free life is. And those two are two angles on the same reality. God sets you free by grace, and then the law is there to help you keep living into the reality of grace, into the reality of freedom, so that you don't get enslaved once more into the bondage of all the things that caught you up before. And this is how I want us to understand the law. The law of God are not just a bunch of arbitrary rules set up in order for God to exercise some sort of power trip over us, right? God is not arbitrary in that way. Instead, God's laws are there in order to help us live freely in the grain of reality. It's, 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 it's like traffic laws, right? Uh, if you obey them, you can freely drive down the highway for many, many hours, many, many miles. But if you don't obey them, that, that, that ends very shortly. And you no longer exercise that freedom because there's a pileup, right? That's kind of the idea of the law. And that's the frame I want us to, to, to head into today as we start thinking about these commands around work and rest, Sabbath and, and, and what comes before Sabbath. That's my generalized intro, thinking about the law as we're going to get into things. But before we do any of that, um, I need help. Not your help. I need the Lord's help to give me grace to, and wisdom to know how to expound God's word. So I want you guys to bow your heads and pray with me. And we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into things. All right? Holy Father, you are good, and you are righteous, and you're holy. And you have given us your word. You've given us your law um, 
to lead us into grace, to lead us into truth, to lead us into freedom. And I pray right now in this time that by the, by the same spirit which you inspired these words, you would give us a mind to understand these words and to live these words. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So uh, Americans have always had a bit of an interesting relationship to work. Uh, compared to a, a lot of our kind of global counterparts. I was looking up the stats on this, as one does before a sermon on work. Um, I think Europeans have something like legally 20, 20 days a year that they're supposed to have paid vacation. The UK has like 28. Uh, the US has none. But on average, Americans will take off maybe 14 days a year, and that's including sick days. So like the vacation, is, vacation is for lazy Europeans, essentially, in the way that, the way that Americans vibe. Uh, and, and that's maybe part of you know, our work ethic, part of why we've, we've done so well, uh, that, and the, that and the natural resources that we acquired. But, but alongside with that, there, there's, I think, recently something a little bit new in the air. If you go online, there's, there's sort of a, if you're too online like I am, you've seen kind of rise and grind culture. So you see on social media or articles, people will talk about hustling. Constantly, so I wake up. It's 4 a.m. I got my coffee. I'm drinking my water. I'm doing these things. I'm I'm, I'm getting multiple streams of revenue going, and I'm I'm getting. I've got my job, and I'm I'm always self-improving. I'm always. I don't know if you kids that are where are you? RUF students, not kids. Young men and women who are going to change the world. If you're on Instagram, you get these ads for these self-improvement accounts about how you're going to hustle and grow and make it and retire by 40. And, and this will all happen if you follow all of these, all of these kind of work ethics things that, the, that these influencers post out there. Um, and this is, again, not coming out of nowhere. This is deep in the American uh, ethos. To the point where a recent Pew study pointed out American parents, something like 90% of American parents consider their children being financially independent and having jobs they enjoy extremely important compared to only 21% of American parents thinking that their children getting married or having children is extremely important, right? So work and job and career, spouse, babies, they want their, they want their kids financially independent, grandbabies, whatever. That, that's, that's the energy coming off of parents. That's the energy in our society. And what's, what's, what's interesting about all that is that there's also, all of this corresponds with a weird other trend in American society, which is like a decrease in the workforce, in jobs. So, so um, working age males who are employed has sharply declined in the last 20 to 40 years uh, since 1960. Uh, in 1960, 97% of men between the ages of 25 and 54 were employed. 86% of men 20 and older had jobs. Right? Now, they worked in factories all over the place, but right now, nowadays, only one in nine men between 25 and 54 and one in five between their early 20s and mid to late 60s are not working. This is, this is a massive population um, shift. Right? If you talk to uh, an economist, we have a couple in our congregation who tell you this is a weird thing that's happening, and a lot of things are driving that. Right? There's economic downturns. There's, there's all these sorts of things, and then there's also just cultural burnout people who don't want to work jobs that they find meaningless and pointless, and so they're opting out of the workforce. I bring this up because this is, Americans have this intense and ambivalent relationship to work, right? It's everything and also it's awful, 
right? It is my meaning and it is terrible. And, 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 and I bring all this up because here we are studying the Sabbath command for, for a couple of weeks. Now Marshall unpacked the, the bulk of the Sabbath command, the meaning of it, but just to briefly again, what, what is the Sabbath command? Well, the Sabbath command is that we are to treat one day in seven, God's people are to treat one day in seven as holy, set apart, distinct. And on that day, the way that you treat it differently is that you don't do work. Not you, nobody in your household, your wife, your kids, your servant, your dog, your, your, your cow, nobody's working. And on that day of no work, what you're doing is honoring God, worshiping and remembering that he's the one that created you and sustained your being, not you. He's the one that set you free from slavery when you, couldn't, when, you, when you were enslaved to Egypt for hundreds of years. And so you rest. You rest. What's fascinating to me is that this is a command. Like, think about it. This is a command, a command that God had to threaten his people to obey and that they didn't obey so they, they obeyed this so poorly that this was part of the cause of their exile. Like, we're actually terrible at taking one day off in seven. That's wild. This seems like the kind of thing, that, oh, yeah, oh, commands, things that are hard to do. Okay, give my money, um, uh, purity, chastity, all these sorts of things. Day off? Easy. Should be able to, should be able to nail that one. And yet we can't. Even college students seem utterly incapable of resting, of stopping, just one day in seven. Why? Why? In light of everything I kind of began with, I just want to suggest that one of the reasons, if not the main reason, that we cannot rest is that we don't understand work. We have a, we have a weird, improper relationship to an understanding of the meaning of work, And so what I want to do the rest of this morning is actually unpack work. I want, to, I want to make three or slash four points. So first I want to talk, what is work in the Bible? What is work actually? Second, what has sin made of work? Third, uh, why does what we've made of work under the conditions of sin not work? Don't worry, I'll explain that later. And then fourth, why does Christ's work actually give us rest? Okay, it'll become clear as we go on. But, but I want to start out with the basic first point. What is work? Are you guys ready? Cool. I'm going to get to it. What is work? All right, I'm going to start with a definition. And then I'll establish it afterwards. Work, for those of you note takers, work is a means of cultivating the world for the sake of worshiping and glorifying God by way of extension and imitation of his creativity. I'll repeat that. Work is a means of cultivating the world for the sake of worshiping and glorifying God by way of extension and imitation of his creativity. So I'm going to unpack that off of Genesis 2. And I get this off of the text in Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 that where we read earlier. Genesis 2 is a text, just so you know how the first couple of chapters of the Bible work. Genesis 1 and 2 don't just tell you how God made the world. It tells you how God made the world to work. Right? They're, they're, they don't just tell you the history of creation. They tell you the normative structure of creation. And in that, we see that God establishes the world as a garden. And then he places within it Adam, the first man, to keep and work the garden. Now, what's going on with that? Well, the first thing, there's, the first thing we could say about this is that Adam, in many ways, is imitating and extending the work of God. 
Right? In Genesis 1, God, it says that God made man or humanity in his own image to represent him in the world. And what do we see God doing in the world? Creating a garden. Right? God is the first worker in the Bible, just, just so you catch that. God is the first one who plants the garden, who establishes the garden, and then puts Adam within it. And so Adam, in working and keeping the garden and cultivating the land and extending the land, in, as Genesis 1 says, subduing and filling the land, biblical scholars will point out, essentially, he's, he's representing God by imitating God and extending the kingdom of God into the world. Right? This is a very high view of work. Uh, God isn't, uh, Adam isn't creating everything out of nothing the way God did. But he is taking the something that God made and he's making something of it. Right? J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, Lord of the Rings author, he called this, he called this sub-creation. God creates that world out of nothing uniquely, but then we make something out of the world. This is a dignifying view of work. This is a dignifying view of work. Work is a way, actually a means of imitating the creator God of the universe. Right? And this is all sorts of work. This is everything from... From, from cultivating the land, you know, subsistence, farm working, up into the highest reaches of, of culture and society. All of this can be done in a way that imitates the Lord God. Second, he's supposed to do this in order to glorify and worship God. See, that phrase is not just a one-off phrase, work and keep the garden. That pops up elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, one of the most prominent ways that it pops up, though, is if you go read the passages around the work of the priests and the Levites who kept the temple and the tabernacle, uh, they are told to keep and guard the tabernacle. Now, I don't have, I don't have time to go into all this, but the tabernacle and the temple are, are really interesting. I, honestly, I wish I could do two or three sermons, and you would all be extremely excited as we go into all the details about the, the calyxes. The cal- everybody's excited about the calyxes. But... Um, the tabernacle and the temple, biblical scholars will point out, are filled with garden imagery, right? There are, worked into, worked into the gold, worked into the walls, there are images of trees, images of fruits and plants. And if you go deep into it, tabernacle, the tabernacle and the temple are actually, they're Eden. Entering back into the temple, entering back into the tabernacle is actually about re-entering Eden, re-entering the original garden of God, where God is, and, and, but the temple and the tabernacle, conversely, the garden is actually a temple. The garden is where God dwells with his people, where God walks with his people, where God communes with his people. And so when you see Adam, Adam's job description is described with the same words and language as the priest and Levite's job description is described. In the same kind of setting, you realize Adam is a priest whose work is worship. His work of extending and building the garden is his priestly act of worship by which the world is a made, made a fit place for God to dwell with his people and be worshipped and enjoy communion. This is an amazingly high view of work. The Bible gives amazing dignity to our drive and our impetus to go out into the world and make something of it. We were wired to do it. We were wired to work and offer our work up to God as a means of worship. Okay, so why doesn't it feel that way? 
what went wrong? Well, what went wrong is sin, right? The, the, the story in Genesis 3 continues when Adam and Eve sin. I don't have time to get into all the details of this, but Adam essentially is given one rule. He had one job. No, he had one rule, and he broke that. And in breaking that, the content of the rule doesn't matter. The point is, he broke, the, he broke the command, and in so doing, he broke his relationship with God. And you think of Adam and Eve, humanity, as like the fulcrum on which the whole universe kind of tilts. Everything went off its, off its axis. It's off kilter. Everything, including our relationship to the world God made and the work that God gave us to do within it. So after Adam and Eve, everything was twisted. And so the impulse that was in them to do Good, God-glorifying work became frustrated, perverted, and distorted in all of their children throughout all of human history. So the question becomes then, what has work become now that work has been broken, now that the world has been broken? And this is where things uh, start to get a little bit more um, maybe uh, experiential for us. The first thing that it becomes is idolatry, right? And it can become idolatry in a couple of ways. First, folks can worship uh, work itself. And what I mean by worshiping it or, or making an idol of something. Uh, Martin Luther gives a description of, God, uh, of, of idolatry or what it means to have a God that's very practical, I think. Even for folks who think, you know, you, somebody dragged you here and you're like, I don't worship God, I don't worship anything, I don't believe in anything, it's fine. Luther says uh, a God or an idol is uh, essentially whatever we put our ultimate faith, our hope, and our trust in. Right? Whatever we look to to save us, to give us meaning, to give us value, to give us worth. And God knows in America we look to work to save us. Right? In a very direct way. Sometimes it's there to save us as an escape from problems at home, our image, our self-image, our social problems, or whatever it is. We look to work as an idol in and of itself. But more often, I think we look to work as a means of worshiping our idols. Right? Because what, what do we do? What do we do with work? Um, so for some of us, we've made an idol out of money. We worship money. Money is, money is what gives us everything we want. So we use work to get money. Work is a means of worship. And so you put in the hours, you rise, you grind, you bow down in order to acquire money because money buys the house, money buys the cars, the lifestyle, the image, the trainers you can fit in the clothes you just bought at the high-end outlet or whatever it is, not even outlet, just the high-end store because now you can afford that because you rose and you grind and you worked and now you made it. And money is what gets you what you worship. Money is what gets you status, right? Some of you want to climb up the ladder of whatever vocation you have chosen in order to assure yourself that you're worth something as a man. You're worth something as a woman. Uh, you're, 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 I don't know, your mom and dad were wrong about you or whatever voice that's haunting you in your head from when you were 15 and you thought you were nothing and work is the way of acquiring a status in competition with everybody else so you can know you matter and down the line. And so people will use worship, use work to worship, which is why we have so much panic and anxiety and fear around it. Further, uh, we use it as a way of getting meaning. And this is where the, the worship thing kind of dovetails into this already. Some of us have a more existential view on this. So, so um, if our work is meaningful, and work was supposed to be meaningful, right? But a, a meaning divorced from God, then we mean something. So, for instance, if our job is good or helpful or adventurous or whatever, if, if I'm at the epic cutting edge of a technology that's going to advance human, human culture and society, then I'm worth something. 
If I'm at the forefront of advocating legislation that will benefit uh, our nation and our society, then I, then I, then I mean that if, if I'm educating bright young minds and shaping the future, then, then, then I must have value, right? I do work, I do good work, therefore I am good. And this plays into the third thing, work is really a way of justifying ourselves, right? Ever since the breach in our relationship with God, we have all had layers of guilt and shame, unexpressed, unarticulated, maybe even unrecognized, that we are trying to deal with the, th the shame that whispers to you about the things you've done in the dark and echoes back to you all of the self-criticism in your soul that comes even from yourself or from, from society or wherever. A lot of us, put it this way, Adam and Eve, when they, when they sinned and they broke their relationship with God, they were originally naked and unashamed. They were just walking around fully at peace with who they are in front of God and the world. But as soon as that breach came, they were filled with shame. And they, they realized they had to cover themselves. And what do they do? The Bible says that they, they took fig leaves, fig leaves, and they, 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 made, uh, they made coverings. They made clothes out of it. I don't, I don't know why fig leaves. Other leaves weren't uh, suited. But the, the thing is, they, they made clothes out of them for, for themselves to cover themselves up, to cover their shame, to cover their guilt. And what I'm saying to you is that for many of us, our resumes, our curriculum vitaes, our GPAs are just fancy, hopefully ever-increasing fig leaves to cover our guilt and cover our shame before the Lord God and all of humanity. Because we don't want to stand naked in front of the world. Now, why doesn't this work? Because it doesn't, right? It doesn't. Uh, in the first place, uh, work is cursed, right? So Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, God curses the ground. I'm actually going to read that passage. We didn't, we didn't read it before. It's on, I don't know, page 2 of your pew Bible, or 3 of your pew Bible, if you want to go there. Um, but, but Adam is, like, enumerating several curses upon the serpent, upon the woman, and upon the man, upon Adam. And Adam, to Adam he says, in verse 17, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of, the, out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The work, the ground, is cursed the law of entropy exists. Any of you who have had a job for about 45 minutes knows that this is the case. You can work for a year on a project and everybody's pulling their weight and then right at the last minute you realize that one guy has not been and he tanks the presentation and a whole year's worth of I don't know, proposal is just out the window. Or maybe it's a group project where you're the only one who's pulling your weight, and the only reason you get an A is because of you, except you couldn't because everybody had to do something. And so the one dork who didn't do his work, that's why you got to see. That's life, right? That is entropy. That is curse. That is sweat. That is toil, right? You think you can figure it out. Oh, I lost my spot here. <laughs> you think you're going to be able to pull it off, and then things that are outside of your control torpedo all that you're doing. You work on a dissertation for a year and a half, somebody publishes an article right out from under you. That hasn't happened to me yet, but it's there. It's there, right? 
Again, even the meaningful, question, the meaningful work question, how can you ever know if it's meaningful enough? Right? How can you ever know if it's meaningful enough? Second, this is something you've probably heard before, but I, and I know I've talked about before, and I know Marshall has probably talked about it before. The gods never deliver. So whatever it is that you're worshiping, using work uh, to worship, uh, they don't actually come through. Because if you're worshiping money, you're never going to have enough. Right? Uh, if you're worshiping status, who knows how high you have to, have to rise. Right? Maybe, maybe you never reached the status that you ever wanted. You never got to that rung of the ladder. Uh, and so that grinds you up inside. Or if you do, when you get up there, there's always the anxiety that somebody's coming for you. Right? Somebody, somebody younger, somebody hungrier, somebody to, willing to grind more hours to knock you off. Right? Maybe, it, maybe it is that academic work and you, you establish something in the field and then somebody, somebody comes and just torpedoes all of it. Right? There's always an anxiety around these things. Right? I mean, let's Super Bowl. How many, how many more Super Bowl rings did Tom Brady really need? What did, what did that cost him? Gods do not deliver. And this is why you can never rest. You can never rest because the gods are unstable, work is in flux, the ground is cursed, all of your accomplishments can be ground to dust, your stock options can fail, 2008 can happen again, and you just didn't diversify enough. Which is why no justification or deep satisfaction or meaning that you pursue in this way can ever be fully stable. None of it can ever fully satisfy the soul. None of it can give it rest. Which is why you work, and you work, and you work, and you think, I know it's Sunday afternoon, but just one more email. Just one more Passover. Just one more study through. Just one more look at the notes. Just give me five more minutes, honey. This is why we exist like sharks. If we stop moving, we die. So that bad news, and I hope you're feeling the weight of it. I think some of you already do live there. Um, what's our hope? Like, what's our hope to this? What will give us rest from this never-ceasing churn of activity. Only the work of Christ. Only the work of Jesus. Right? See, Romans 5, and I lost my place. Honestly, it doesn't matter. Romans 5. Romans 5 points out that Jesus is not the first Adam. He's the last Adam. He's the great second Adam who comes and is given a task by God, a task by his father, but it's one that he does not fail at. Actually, his task is his obedience. Right? His task is rendered throughout the whole of his ministry up and, to, up and through his death on the cross. Every work of righteousness we left undone, he did. And as he hung upon that cross... As he suffered and bled and died to pay, for all, to pay for all of our sins, to pay for our idolatry, our blasphemy, and the curse that hung over everything we've done, he paid our debt. And I think as Marshall preached last week, when he uttered his words on the cross, it is finished, he really is saying, it is finished. The work that you have known deep in your souls needed to be done to cover over your sin, to cover over your shell 
your guilt to cover over my sin, my guilt, my shame. He finished it. It's paid for. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Father has put his stamp of approval on it, vindicating him and vindicating us. What are some of the benefits of that work that he has done for us then? Well, when you put your faith in him, when you believe in him, you are placed in a relationship with him where what he has done counts for you. What he has accomplished becomes our accomplishment. We are united with Christ. You are justified, right? In a court of law, you get one of two verdicts, guilty or righteous. And Jesus, after his death, in his resurrection, was pronounced righteous because he had done everything that needed to be done. And when you're united with him, you get credit for everything he's done. You are the kid in the group project who didn't do any of the work and gets the A because of that one really intense high achiever. Jesus is the high achiever who saves your butt morally. But existentially, this is true, right? What happens when this happens? Well, for one thing, idols are dethroned. Because when you are brought into a right relationship with God again, when you see what Jesus has done, you see that every other God that you're tempted to worship just sucks compared to Jesus. Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is kind. Jesus is forgiving. Jesus is full. Where everything else is emptiness and dust. And so you begin to worship him, which then alters your relationship to work. And work no longer becomes the worship of false gods or, the, or God itself. It just can go back to being something that you offer up to the true God. And so that relationship alters. And this begins to give us hope. Because a lot of us really are stuck in jobs that feel meaningless, that are a grind, that aren't the thing that I studied in college that I was hoping that I was going to do my whole life. And, and the, but the reality is, when all of that stuff alters, the temperature goes down, and you realize that even, even the job that you think is junk can be offered up to God as an act of worship. And the reality is, the good news of Jesus has to be good news for, for day laborers as much as it is for, for lawyers, as much as it is for any of us, right? So any act, of, barring something like actually criminal, any act of worship, any act of work that you do can be offered up to God and accepted by God as the act of a grateful son or daughter in Christ. And with all this in place, you can begin to rest. Because when you realize that rest and work are both worship of the God who justifies you apart from your work, on the basis of the work of Jesus, you realize that rest is an option for you. Rest is actually the ultimate thing for you. There is a Sabbath rest coming. You can rest because Christ has worked and he has done enough. And so you can stop, and you can breathe. Because Jesus is good. Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, you are gracious.
and you were kind and you were merciful. And you've done enough. You've done enough. God, we ask you right now that you help us rest in that today and praise your name for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.